Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I am Ben Williams, your host. Today, let's discuss the Constitution of the United States of America. Could it be a Masonic document? to announce that issue two of the Esoteric Mason is at the printer. Should be shipping out probably end of next week. If you're a subscriber, look forward to receiving it in the mail soon. And we'll be ending the episode with chapter 29 of the three books of occult philosophy by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim. Constitution of the United States of America is perhaps one of the greatest achievements of the social collective to emerge in recent memory. It certainly helps safeguard many liberties that the individual can exert as a type of sovereign, unlike in classist or medieval European systems under the authority of an absolute despot, a monarch, or a pope often unelected but born by birth. There were times, of course, in the Middle Ages where there were the do-nothing kings, the majordomo of the palaces who essentially ran the show even while the royal blood occupied the throne. But, you know, for the most part, in the last 2,000 years at least in the West, the idea of a representative government was sincerely lacking. Certainly after the fall of Rome... And, of course, Rome corrupted also with the emperors um, after the ascension of Augustus Caesar. So what is it about the Constitution? I mean, can we say that the Constitution is a Masonic document? No, not really, right? But we can certainly say that it shares many Masonic tenets and that Freemasonry, at least in part, was an integral and important part of inspiring the Constitution. Or shall we say, Freemasonry was busy formalizing similar philosophies, codifying them into a self-governing unit 
here in the United States about the same time. Now, this could be a result of, you know, the likes of just sort of social evolution. You know, the printing press had been out for oh, more than 100 years at this point. Uh, while literacy rates were still low, um, nonetheless, they were increasing. And um, thinkers, philosophers, men who weren't necessarily religious, were now able to reach a wider audience by publishing their thoughts. And certainly that's what happened in the Enlightenment with the likes of Thomas Paine, um, Jonathan Swift, and others. So in the United States, we can actually trace a line back from the Constitution into Anderson's Constitutions at the Freemasons. And it begins with a man called Daniel Cox, who was the provincial grandmaster, or at least he was toasted as the provincial grandmaster of the United States in the mid-18th century. Um, and he proposed a union for uniting the Carolinas, which um, seemed to draw perhaps on similar ideas expressed in Anderson's constitutions. I'm not sure if we can trace you know, language directly there between or not, but certainly Daniel Cox was well acquainted with Anderson's constitutions, and he may have indeed been a member of Devil's Tavern Lodge Number no. 4, if I'm not mistaken, which was one of the ones involved in the formation of the Premier Grand Lodge of England. But I think maybe even more interesting than that is when you consider Benjamin Franklin's role in all of this. So Ben Franklin, as we know, was Grand Master of Philadelphia, uh, one of the earliest Masonic jurisdictions in the United States. And Philadelphia had uh, obviously been chartering some lodges. And um, even before a fi the, an official Grand Lodge arose in Philadelphia, um, it was noted that there were lodges meeting under, you know, a time immemorial right is the phrase that was used. In other words, there were Masons that were meeting even without a charter in a sort of Masonic communication of a kind. Interestingly, the uh, city tavern uh, was across the road from um, oh, the principal hall there where a lot of the legislature, legislature was meeting in those sort of uh, mid-early to mid and, and certainly latter 18th century dates that are so important to the founding of this country. Well, um, certainly they would cross the road, um, many of the legislator, legislators, and um, finish the evening, perhaps we must presume, in the city tavern um, in a Masonic setting, enjoying a wee dram or two, perhaps, and smoking those little clay pipes. <laughs> that uh, Actually, they found a little clay pipe like that. I think it was in 2006, maybe 2008, in the basement area at Ferry Farm which was George Washington's farm. And on the on the front of this clay pipe, you can actually see this online, there is a very faint but discernible square encompasses. Was that the clay pipe that George Washington himself smoked while convening at his ferry farm there in Virginia? Who knows? But back to Ben Franklin. So um, Ben Franklin, um, as you may know, was a man of many talents. Um, he was a tallow maker. He made candles. Um, but he was also a printer, um, and by the way, his tallow making exposed him to certain chemical operations, you know, the use of lye, extracting fats, uh, rendering fats and creating kind of, you know, soaps and candles is a, is a, is a certain chemical process. Um, saponification is what we call it today. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, his love of science was certainly kindled, no doubt, in 
following in his father's trades, but he he also was a printer. And um, the first book that he printed for national distribution among the then 13 colonies, this was in 1734, if I'm not mistaken, was none other than Anderson's Constitutions. So Ben Franklin himself published Anderson's Constitutions of the Freemasons. This was the book of constitutions that was printed by the moderns, uh, the premier Grand Lodge of England, um, back in 1723, 1726 maybe, 1723 I think is right. Um, but uh, my beagle just came downstairs. What, what's going on, Warwick? What are you doing here? Hi, puppy. Yeah, do you need to go outside? Well, I'm going to keep going here, and if he starts howling, you'll have to forgive me. What is it, puppy? Um, so where was I? Um, yes. So Anderson's constitutions, 17, um, you know, 23, I think it was 1721 was the Payne's constitution, 1723. I think that's correct. So we're we're now in like 1734, um, and, um, or 1736. I'm getting all confused here with my dog staring at me. And, um, anyway, so Ben Franklin published this. Now you got to remember this is back in the 18th century, so printing involved actually setting the type, you know, either melting lead into small little, you know, ingots of square little ingots with letters inscribed, mirror images of letters inscribed, or even cutting out wood, you know, chunks and setting them and then pressing them. So each page was, uh, <laughs> it's my beagle groaning there. Um, each page was, you know, printed by hand and then sort of dried, and then the book would be assembled. And this is the way it was done. It took time, of course, but it was a lot quicker than transcribing, as had been the practice for uh, centuries before. So undoubtedly, Ben Franklin must have been quite familiar with what was in Anderson's Constitutions, since he supervised and you know his company, and I imagine he was somewhat involved, at least, in the printing and distribution of the book. So therefore, it should not be that surprising that it could have influenced him in making his Albany plan, which he proposed to the Albany Congress, a plan of union for uniting the colonies. Uh, Unfortunately, his plan was rejected at that time, um, but it did make way for the Articles of Confederation later on. And then ultimately, from the Articles of Confederation into the Constitution itself. So we can trace a line between the drafters of the Constitution. I mean, not so much Madison, but certainly Ben Franklin had input into the Constitution. It's often ascribed that, you know, to him, to his pen, um, the the preamble is often ascribed. I'm not necessarily sure if that is correct or not. There's that wonderful scene in John Adams where he he crosses it out and puts self-evident, I think. You know, we behold these truths to be self-evident, and he either corrects um, Madison or, or, or maybe I'm thinking of the Declaration, and he, he corrects Jefferson. But either way, um, Ben Franklin's influence, I think, should not be understated, um, even if he didn't draft the majority of the actual language. So what is it about the Masonic Lodge that could apply to the Democrat Republic that is the United States today? Well, I think quite obviously, back in the Middle Ages, the tradesmen were able to exert a type of power that other guilds were unable to exert. So, you, you know, back then, you're building a habitation, you're building a city wall, you're building the cathedral. Now, imagine, if you will, in this time period, that the churches in the towns were the tallest buildings. You know, that spire was the first thing that the sun would touch 
when it rose each day and bring forth, you know, the glory of God, if you will, the glory of the gospel. Nowadays, of course, the tallest buildings, the banks, <laughs> that's how far we've fallen, brethren. Um, but nonetheless, so the, the, the stonemasons not only possessed a certain type of knowledge that enabled them to build these superstructures that were so integral and important for things just beyond everyday habitation. You know, I mean, a, a cathedral was much like a calendar, right? And that it told the, the seasons of the year um, in many respects. Um, and also for things like fortifications and uh, castles for the, 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 the lords, if you will. So the Freemasons were, you know, able to exert an unduly influence. I don't know if unduly is the right word. Let's just say an atypical influence against church and state. Both the church and the state against the spiritual and temporal rulers of the society. And as an added benefit for, you know, our consideration, if you will, in this, in this discussion, these projects were not only monumental and expensive and required a lot of human labor, human capital, they took a lot of time. And the type of expertise that was needed, because if these projects failed, you know, it's not like the plasterer where the wall kind of crumbles it's not like the tanner where the leather just sort of falls apart at the seams. You know, people died. Buildings collapsed. Great hardship was wreaked upon the society when the Masons' work failed. So the Masons were able to exert a type of influence. And they also required a certain type of knowledge. Um, back then, of course, it, it's a type of physics, right? I mean, it is physics um, and, and engineering if you will. And this is a time without the benefit of, you know, algebra probably, although I guess some of them might have had that, I guess, coming in from the, the Levant. But, you, you know, for, for I think quite, quite a few, um, the mathematics and the, the understanding of the science that they were employing was basically just based on sacred geometry. You know, it was all sort of drawable from the a rope and a you know, a chalk, if you will, so that you could draw and ascribe circles. From the circle, every shape can be made, correct? When you start intersecting circles in interesting ways, um, you can make triangles. And when you make triangles, you can make perfect right angles. And when you make perfect right angles, you can, you know, make, make um, three, four, five triangles. Um, and you can begin to sort of understand the verticals, the perpendiculars, right, and the horizontals, and all these symbols that we employ today. So um, without a doubt, they required advancement by merit. This wasn't something that just anybody could do, right? You couldn't just say, well, look, I'm the Lord's son. I've got pure blood. I want to be a Mason. Don't I? You know what I mean? I want to build. I want to be like a builder. I want to be like you, Master Mason. You needed skill and you needed a lifelong dedication. You needed to apprentice in order to develop the skills and knowledge necessary to build these structures demanded by society at this time. And of course, some of these buildings took generations to build, right? So undoubtedly, masonry required skill and knowledge and therefore devised through necessity a system of advancement by merit. So we do see in early guilds, guild lodges, craft lodges, right? Um, operative lodges. We do see a type of democratic process, not only to advance apprentices to fellows of the craft such that they could become journeymen and move between jur jurisdictions, if you will, or builds, sites, right? Um, 
But also because of that movement, because of that fluidity of labor crossing from one place to another, um, democracy was likely important because your labor base was always changing, right? Um, so when it came to wages and things like that, um, it's surprising how democratic the stonemasons' guilds in the operative times actually were. So for a long time then, stonemasons have maintained a tradition of self-elected governance, of electing their members um, and advancing their members based on merit only, not birthright. So it should really be no surprise then that in the United States, when the speculative craft began to take root, that these symbols found fertile soil. We had here a, an emerging society struggling to find definition from across the pond, um, which was often denied it. You know, it was the, the, this country was often looked down to. I was once told that Ben Franklin went to London to Parliament to try to, you know, impress upon uh, the crown and the, uh, if you will, and, and the Brits, um, you know, the error of their ways and to try to resolve the growing divide, which would ultimately end in the, the war for independence. And that Ben Franklin went in a royalist and left a revolutionary because he realized it was like a conversation with the deaf. They were just deriding him and mocking him. And he, he realized there was no way to fix this, that they would always be second-class citizens on this side of the Atlantic. So anyway, um, to cut a long story short, I think that we as Masons should look at the Constitution as a Masonic document. Um, and I, I use that term not to say that it was fabricated in a Masonic milieu, but that it came out of a similar inspiration that informs our craft today. And as we govern ourselves by the, the plum and the square, so should we recognize the verticals, the perpendiculars, and the horizontals, if you will, informing the Constitution of the United States of America. Chapter 29 of The Three Books of Occult Philosophy by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim What things are under the power of Mercury and are called Mercurial? Things under Mercury are these. Amongst elements, water, although it moves all things indistinctly. Amongst humors, those especially which are mixed, as also the animal spirit. Amongst tastes, those that are various, strange, and mixed. Amongst metals, quicksilver, tin, the silver marcasite. Amongst stones, the emerald, acartes, red marble, topaz, and those which are of diverse colors and various figures naturally, and those that are artificial, as glass, 
and those which have a colour mixed with yellow and green. Amongst plants and trees, the hazel, five-leaved grass, the herb mercury, fumatory, pimpernel, marjoram, parsley, and such as have shorter and less leaves, being compounded of mixed natures and diverse colours. Animals also, that are of quick sense, ingenious, strong, inconstant, swift, and such as become easily acquainted with men, as dogs, apes, foxes, weasels, the hart, and mule, and all animals that are of both sexes, and those which can change their sex, as the hare, civet cat, and such like. Amongst birds, those which are naturally witty, melodious and inconstant, as the linnet, nightingale, blackbird, thrush, lark, the gnatsnapper, the bird calandra, the parrot, the pie, the bird ibis, the bird bird porphyrio, the black beetle with one horn. And amongst fish, the fish called trochius, which goes into himself, also porcontrel for deceitfulness and changeableness, and the forkfish for its industry, the mullet also that shakes off the bait on the hook with his tail. So I hope that you gathered here that when he's talking, for example, about these animals, you know, here we have the dog, which we know is also under Mars because of its loyalty, right? And because of its bravery and because of its teeth um, and its sort of energy, if you will. Um, Yet he also is here placing the dog under Mercury. Why is that? Well, he explains it in sort of the preamble to that sentence, if you will. He says animals also that are of quick sense, So animals that can learn, right? Animals that are smart, like you can teach a dog, that are ingenious. Certainly the wolf and the fox are ingenious and and, and tricky. Strong, okay, inconstant, meaning changeable, and swift, and such as become easily acquainted with men. In other words, that are communicable, right? These are the aspects of Mercury that are giving dominion of these species under that sphere, if you will. And it's the same with the birds. I mean, many of these birds he's assigned elsewhere. I think most important for the purposes of illustrating this point are the parrot um, and also the ibis. Of course, the ibis, sacred to Jehuti, Toth, or Thoth, if you like. Um, Certainly like the Ben-Ben bird uh, from ancient Egypt. Um, I thought it was also interesting that he include artificial stones, various naturally diverse colors and those that are artificial as glass. And that likely is because they've been blended, right? And they've undergone transmutation. They've undergone change. So when you melt the sand and set the silicon dioxide in its crystal arrangement that allows translucence and transparency and creates the pane of glass, it has become a mercurial implement by virtue of that process, if that makes sense. So we see mercurial intelligences in things that are ingenious, like the inner workings of a Patek Philippe watch, or those tiny little gears whirring and turning. In fact, even the keeping of time itself, the movement of the hands. While time, it's, you know, on the whole, is under the dominion of the moon, so to speak, the keeping of time, the keeping of time is subject to, to, to Mercury, 
in the sense that it involves the mercurial faculties of measurement. So every transaction, be it financial or otherwise, be it contractual, specific performance, is a mercurial transaction. Um, Mercury rules all rhetoric. Mercury rules all weights and measures. All the sciences, in a certain sense, devolve to Mercury. Now, don't get me wrong, some some sciences will have yet other rulers. For example, Mars is certainly given to the alchemists, even while Mercury rules the alchemists because of the fire, the bellows, the melting, the heating, the crucible, right, that is necessary in that particular science. Um, Blacksmiths as a trade, certainly a martial trade, correct? But the tools which they wield are fitted under the mercurial archetype, even while they bludgeon martially. So what we see here is an intermixing of these virtues, these rulerships, overall items, um, so that any particular item, while it may be given to a particular sphere individually, yet in its internal components comprises rulerships of the other planets as well. I think I gave the example of the rose before um, in the sense of those velvety, lush red petals belonging to Venus and the scent of the rose, the, 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 the beautiful smell of the rose belonging to Venus. But then the stem, the hardness of the stem being saturnine and the, the sharpness, the acuteness of the thorns, of course, belonging to Mars. So we have the exaltation of Venus by Saturn and the joining of of Venus in opposites with Mars, whereby the rose becomes apt symbol for the union of man and woman, as well as an expression of love. Well, thank you for listening. This is a short episode simply because I have a final next week, and actually this class is proving to be challenging. Our professor is uh, an old prosecutor um, for some county out there, I think Los Angeles County in California. She now represents lawyers um, who are being disbarred and whatnot. Class is professional responsibility and ethics. Um, It's a good class. It's interesting, but she's definitely making it difficult. So I've got my work cut out for me. RockyMountainMason.com LaughingLion.net EsotericMason.com Check it out. And until next time, take care and Godspeed. <laughs>